Well, we're back in the book of James this morning, in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. And James, as you probably recall from pastor's introduction and some of the passages that we study, is a very practical book. And if we could summarize the theme of the book of James, we'd probably say something like, faith works, or faith without works is dead. Be doers of the Word and not just hearers, James says. And so we've looked at things like going through trials. We've looked at um, controlling the tongue. We've looked at treating others fairly. Um, We've looked at uh, lots of ways that our faith gets lived out, right, in front of a, of a watching and, and dying world. And uh, here we come to another very practical section this morning, a section on, on anger and fighting. Uh, it's not, not going to re- be a real feel-good section, but practical nonetheless. I would imagine that probably everybody in here has a uh, had occasion to have a fight or a quarrel or a struggle of strife and some kind of a relationship at some time, or will. And so, James tells us this morning where those fights come from and what to do about it. So that's where we are this morning. Now, before we get started, I want to just say a couple of words about my thoughts as we approach the Word of God. Um, A few days ago, as I was kneeling and, and thinking about today and, and praying about this uh, endeavor, I thought, God, this is, a, this is such a foolhardy thing to do, that a, a finite, self-centered, sinful, human-created being would attempt to expound upon your holy and precious and life-giving and perfect Word unless you are in it. And so let's pray that God will be in it. I want to ask um, the 8 to 12-year-olds, who's our teacher this morning? Do you guys remember? The Holy Spirit. There you go. You made me proud. The Holy Spirit's our teacher, right? Not me. So if God is not in His Word, uh, then we're here in vain, right? But God is in His Word. I'm going to read, before we pray, from Hebrews uh, chapter 4, two of my favorite verses on the power of the Word of God. For the Word of God is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God says that his word will not return to him void, right? But will accomplish the purpose for which he sent it out. So, we're going to pray, and then we're going to look at James chapter 4, and we're going to trust that God, through his Holy Spirit, will apply that word to our hearts and change us. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come now to the time in the service where we, where we open your word, we read it, we talk about it, we expect you to empower your word by your spirit. We expect you to take your word and apply it to our hearts like a scalpel and do the surgery that you need to do in us to conform us 
to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand for the reading of the passage this morning, James chapter 4, 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You may be seated. So I have three points this morning. The first one is the cause of quarreling. The second one is the consequences of worldly desires, and then the third is the cure for quarreling. So first of all, let's look at the cause of quarreling. James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and can obtain, so you fight and quarrel. All right, I want to look at a couple of words here as we start to work through this passage. And the first one is the word passions. Uh, James says this is the cause, right? The cause of the quarrels and fighting is passions. So let's look at that word. Um, The word passions, the meaning is not, it wasn't immediately clear to me, um, because passions can be a good thing, right? I mean, we can be passionate about our relationship with God. We can be passionate about evangelism. We can be passionate about the proclamation of the gospel. Sometimes passion is a good thing. But here, James is saying this is a cause of fighting, So, the Greek word behind this word passions is literally pleasure. But in the context, the Bible dictionaries that I've read through define this word as sensual delight or lust. And so here we see that passions is not a good thing. It's being used in a negative context. It has the idea of uh, attempting to gratify the flesh through satisfying fleshly desires. A commentator who I like to read, uh, whose name is David Guzik, writes this, there's some root of carnality, an internal war within the believer regarding the lusts of the flesh. So this word passion here, not a good thing, is an ungodly urge to gratify the desires of the flesh. Now let's, let's look at another significant word here in these first three verses, and that's the word you or your. That word, those words you or your occur 11 times in these first three verses. So James is saying the cause of the fights and quarrels within you, the cause of strife in your relationship, 
is inside of you. It's your passions, your desires, your lusts, your coveting that is the problem. We, we fight. We fight taking responsibility for our sin, don't we? Uh, even now, maybe some of you are, are recoiling at these verses, saying you're the problem if you have a fight. <laughs> you might be thinking, no, 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 no. I'm thinking of a fight right now, and, and I'm not the problem. I'm angry at so-and-so, but I'm not the problem. I don't know. This natural reaction that we have to avoiding taking responsibility goes all the way back to the garden, doesn't it? God told Adam and Eve, you can eat from any tree you want except this one tree. And then one day, they're found hanging around the tree, and the serpent comes and says to Eve, hey, God's lying to you. You know, this is really going to be good for you. She eats. Adam, who the Bible says was with her, ate. They know they're naked. They run away, hide. God comes and finds them, and right away he says to Adam, did you eat from that tree? And Adam says, yes, God, I did. I'm sorry. I take full responsibility for what I did. I shouldn't have done that. You told me not to do it, and I did it. Please forgive me. Is that what he said? No. What did he say? She. She made me do it. God turns to Eve. What have you done? What does she do? The serpent. The serpent made me do it. And we have inherited that tendency. Thousands of years later, we do not want to take responsibility for our sin. Husbands, I want to, I want to ask you a question. Let's say you've just had an argument with your wife, and this dialogue is playing on in your head, and you say these words to yourself, I'm angry at my wife because, what's the next word in that sentence? Hmm? She. I'm angry at my wife because she, or wives. I'm angry at, me, my, I'm angry at my husband because he, or I'm angry at my children because they, or I'm angry at my parents because they, or I'm angry at my sister because she, or I'm angry at my brother because he. I mean, I don't know about you, but that's almost the universal reaction in my heart. I've gotten upset, I've gotten irritated because she, or he, or they. And here, God is telling us you can't do that. It's not she, or he, or they. It's you. It's a hard word. Are you willing... Are you willing to let God take that word and change you? Are you willing to take responsibility? Are you willing, next time there's some type of strife, next time that temptation to get irritated or angry at someone or something starts to rise up in you, are you willing to say, that's my problem? I've got desires that are 
are ungodly to satisfy my flesh. They're not being met, and that's why I'm getting upset. You desire and do not have, so you murder, James says. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So James is saying that the cause of the quarreling is not external, but it's internal. It doesn't come from others or from our circumstances. It comes from inside of us. And our selfish desires, when they go unmet, cause us to get angry at those around us whom we blame as responsible. So instead of saying, I'm mad at my wife because she did such and such, husbands, are you willing to say, I'm mad at my wife because I've got ungodly desires that are going unmet? God, show, show me what those are and cleanse me. Well, let's go to the second point. What are the consequences of having these worldly desires? Verses 4 and 5, James writes this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or you do, do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So this is very interesting. In the first few verses, we saw that quarreling is a result of misplaced affections, worldly desires, unfulfilled lusts that God is not choosing to fulfill. And here we see that those misplaced affections alienate us from God. In fact, God says when we are desiring things other than Him that are in the world, he, he says we're committing adultery. Well, this has now become, this has now become really serious. So let me, uh, let me ask you um, to, to finish this math law. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Thank you, Jordan. So what James is saying, you follow James's reasoning here? A equals B, B equals C, A equals C. He's saying if you are fighting, it's because you are lusting after things of the world. If you're lusting after things of the world, then you are at enmity with God, and God is not first. So let's go from A to C. If you're fighting, then God is not first. If you have strife with someone else, then you're committing adultery with God. Am I wrong? Is that what that's saying? I was, um, I don't know about you, but that, that, that really sobered me. That really sobered me. I tend to treat so lightly my squabbles and arguments and strife. I hear God saying, this is really serious. The passages that we read this morning, Psalm 133 and 1 John 4, Unity is precious to God. God takes it really seriously. I was sharing this with my family, this A equals B, B equals C, then A equals C. If we're fighting, then we're committing adultery with God. And one of my daughters said, whoa, that's harsh. It is. This is, this is serious. 
Well, maybe James is using hyperbole. Maybe he's uh, overstating his case. Maybe he's being unnecessarily harsh with us. He says, friendship with the world is enmity with God, or being at odds with, being an enemy of. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Let's see if there are any other verses that speak to that same thing. First John, John writes this. In uh, chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desire of the, of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So John is saying, in essence, the same thing, isn't he? He's saying, if we are in love with the world, we're not in love with God. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, said this, No one can serve two masters. Matthew 6, 24. For either, either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So is this, is this hitting anyone else like it, like it hit me when I, when I was studying this in the last couple of weeks? James is saying that quarreling, fighting, strife, broken relationships are an evidence of a heart that is self-serving, that is desiring things of the world. And a heart that is desiring things of the world is committing adultery with God, making oneself an enemy of God. As soon as I saw the word adulterous, you adulterous people, I thought of um, the book of Hosea. In the Old Testament, God often told the, the Israelites that when they wor went and worshipped other gods, they were committing adultery with him. And so, um, oh man, it was rough duty to be a prophet, wasn't it? Rough duty to be a prophet in the Old Testament. God told one of the prophets to marry a woman who he knew would be unfaithful to him. So Hosea marries a woman named Gomer, and sure enough, she goes off and she, leave, she leaves him for other men. So God was putting in front of Israel a, a real-life picture that they could, they could understand what adultery looked like. And he says, can, can, you, can, you, can you feel how, I, how Hosea is feeling right now when his wife went off and did that? Can you feel that? That's how I feel when you leave me and you go worship other gods. And that's what God is calling us right here. If you are, if you are going after the world and fighting as a result, uh, an indication that you are, then you're leaving me. You're leaving your first love. You're committing adultery with me. This is, this is, this is hard. This is a hard word to hear. Well, there are two other consequences that I have written down here of our, our disunity. Um, the first one is in John 13, 35, the upper room discourse. Jesus met with his disciples. They're having the, the Passover. It's uh, just hours before Jesus is headed out for the cross to be betrayed and to be crucified. And he says to his disciples, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, 
if you have love for one another. Conversely, um, if we don't have love for one another, if we fight and quarrel, uh, people don't know we're disciples, right? Jesus said, this is, this is the mark. This is the mark of your discipleship, your love for one another. So if there's quarreling, if there's squabbling, if there's disunity, people have grounds to say, I don't see Jesus in you. I don't see that you're a Christian. And if that weren't serious enough, it gets even worse. In John chapter 17, the chapter we call Jesus' high priestly prayer, they've left the upper room. They're on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus stops. He prays for the 11 who are in front of him, and he prays for us, and he prays this. I do not ask for these only, the 11 in front of him, but also for those who believe in me through their word. And that's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So <clears throat> what Jesus is asking the Father for here, and then some of the, the last words that he spoke before he went to the cross, He's imploring the Father that we have the same unity that He and the Father have. And that is, that is a, an unbelievable thing to pray for. But Jesus is saying that unity validates my ministry. Do you see it? You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying if they have oneness in the church, if they love one another, if they get along, if they serve one another, if they meet one another's needs, if they bear one another's burdens, if they pray for one another, it validates my ministry. Otherwise, people have grounds to say Jesus is not who he said he was. He didn't really come from the Father. He's not really divine. That's what this says, right? I'm praying that they may be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So unity in the church is an indication to the church that Jesus is really who he said he was, that he's really the Son of God, that he really did come to make us new, and his, his life in us makes a difference. God takes our unity really seriously. So let me ask you, are you allowing some type of broken relationship to remain in your life with a parent or a spouse or a child or a brother or a sister? Have you been under the mistaken assumption that that can remain undealt with and you can have a fruitful Christian life and an intimate walk with Jesus while you still have this issue sitting off here to the side that's not dealt with? I think this passage this morning would say, no, you can't do that. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, and... Uh, I memorized this in King James. So um, he said, If thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, first go. Le leave thy gift there before the altar. Go be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer thy gift. You see, you see what God is saying? He's saying, Don't even come to me in worship until you've made things right with 
everybody who has anything against you. And notice it doesn't say somebody whom you've offended. It says somebody who has something against you. So you could have been in the right. And yet God says, do everything you can to make things right with the people around you, those in your life, the relationships that might be broken or strained. Do everything you can to make that right before you come to me. That's what he said in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Leave your gift before the altar. First, go be reconciled to your brother, and then come back to me. God takes unity really seriously. All right, let's move to the next verse, verse 5. When I was first reading over this, this verse about um, the Spirit, he, he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he placed in us, I thought, I, I don't really understand what that means. I'm going to just skip it. <laughs> but I kept looking at it, I kept reading it, I kept praying about it, and um, I, I, I think I know what it means, and I, if, I, if I'm right, I think it's probably the key verse in this whole, in this whole passage. Notice that, at least in the ESV, that spirit is not capitalized. Everywhere where it talks about God's spirit, that word spirit is capitalized. Here it is not capitalized, and so what I, now, I should say that commentators are divided about what this passage really means. If you go and, and, and read commentary, commentaries about this, there's some confusion even amongst the best Bible scholars. So I'm certainly not going to stand here and say I know for sure what this means. But it seems to me, as I read the commentators, as I read the passage, as I pray about this, it seems to me that what God is saying is that He has put a, a, a spirit in us that is able to fellowship with Him, able to commune with Him, able to worship Him, and He is jealous that that Spirit in us does just what He created us for. That's what we were made for. That's why we're made, to be in an intimate, eternity-long relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's why we're here. And the reason that we're still here is to get ready for that day when we're wed to Him, right? That's why we're here. We're, we're here to be in that relationship. And so God is saying, look, I made you with the kind of spirit. I made you like me. Let us make man in our image. I made you with a spirit that can worship me, that can be in a relationship with me, that can commune with me, that can love me. That's what makes us different from the animals. And God says, I really, really want you to take that spirit and come to me with it. Now, we need to say something at this point which has really made a, uh, caused a lot of people to stumble. It's even, even kept people out of the faith, and that is they look at, the, at, at passages like this, they look at God demanding exclusive worship, and they think, man, he's, this guy's got a problem. God doesn't have a need that only we can fill. God doesn't have an ego problem that he's demanding our worship to, to, to address his insecurities. Hear this. The reason that God is demanding exclusive worship is because He knows that's the best for us. He knows that we are settling for second best if we choose anything other than Him. He's wanting the best for us when He demands exclusive worship. One of... Uh, uh, John Piper's favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis is like this. 
It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. How many of you have uh, seen Pride and Prejudice? Who, what's the name of the guy? Darcy? Is that the name of the guy? And he has this enormous palace, right? And these huge grounds that are all beautifully manicured. So it would be like this, ish, is this business of God uh, desiring a worship. be like if Darcy went into town and found uh, a, a prostitute laying in the gutter and said, Hey, I would like you to come and live with me, be my wife. And she says, no, I, 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 I prefer my life here. And he says, no, really, please. I, I, I'm begging you, this, this, you, you will really, really like this. Uh, I'm happy here where I am. That, that, that's why God is saying, come to me. Turn away from those things. A relationship with me is so much better than the things you'll find in the world. So when God says, come and worship me exclusively, don't have any other gods before me, it's not because he's got a problem. It's because he knows the best thing for us is to have him. Well, you might have felt like James has stepped on your toes this morning. You might feel like I felt, oh, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and live among people of unclean lips. You might feel really convicted. I don't know. I did. I, I was really struck by how seriously God takes disunity and how much he desires unity in the church. But God doesn't leave us without hope. He finishes this passage with some practical counsel as to how we can deal with this issue of ungodly desires in our hearts. So we come to the last point of the message, the cure for quarreling. James 4, 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's kind of a transition verse in between the problem and the solution. God is telling us that there's grace available for the humble. He gives more grace. What sweet words for a, a desperate heart. He gives more grace. God has a solution for our misplaced desires and the strife and the fighting that might result. God wants us to be cured. He wants us to love Him. He wants us to be in a unique, precious, intimate relationship with Him. And here He tells us how. But we need to begin by acknowledging that we need Him, right? He says He gives grace to the humble, not to the proud. So we have to start by saying, God, I, I have a problem, but I can't fix this on my own. My heart needs your surgery. 
Grace is given to the humble, but opposition is there for the proud. I don't know about you, but I would far rather have God's grace than his opposition. Boy, to be opposed by God, that's a serious thing. Um, I'm going to just like detour for just a few minutes to talk about, and, and, and forgive me if this doesn't seem um, relevant, but it just God laid these passages on my heart, and I just want to share them. Um, these are some examples of what has happened in the Old Testament and New Testament, one of them, to proud people. Okay? So remember the context here. We've, we've, James has described the problem. Now he's about to tell us the solution, but right in between there he says, God gives grace to the humble, but he's against. I think another version says, sets himself against the proud. We don't want to be there. Uh, remember Nebuchadnezzar? Uh, he was walking up, you know, up on the roof one, one day and looked out at Babylon and said, man, isn't that, didn't I do something wonderful here? And right away, God took his mind away from him until, until he acknowledged that God was sovereign. Remember that? Um, Isaiah, a king who was a good king for a while, and then we read this in 2 Chronicles 26, 16. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, and he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense. And he went in there to burn incense, and the priests all came in after him and said, Hey, 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 you're not supposed to be in here. Don't do this. And God struck him with leprosy, and he had to live away from the rest of the people for the rest of his life because of his leprosy, because he was proud. Hezekiah, another good king. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death, and he prayed to the Lord, and he answered him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. We don't want to be opposed by God. In the New Testament, Acts 12, 21 through 23, read like this. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Don't be a proud person. Be a humble person and receive God's grace and not his wrath. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Over and over in the Bible, you see God dealing harshly with pride. So here in these next few verses, you'll see that God says, Humble yourselves. Acknowledge your need. Go to your knees and say, God, I, I'm a sinner and I need you. I need you to straighten out this messy relationship in my life that I've allowed to remain because of my sinful desires. God, I need you. I need you to change my heart. Humble yourself. So let's read these last four verses then. And here we see God's antidote for a 
wandering heart that leads to strife and fighting and quarreling and blaming others for our problems. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, verse 7. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So, you might think, if you just read the first few verses, okay, I see that. I see that uh, the cause of my uh, quarreling is my, a problem with my heart. Therefore, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to stop wanting wrong things. I'm going to stop fighting. But that's not what God says is the cure. God's, God, God is offering not just to remove sinful desires from us, but to replace them with right desires. Do you see that? All these verses here having, have to do with the right, right relationship with God. So God is saying, if you have a problem with strife in your relationships that's caused by wrong desires, replace those right desires by coming close to me. How many of you listen to uh, Ask Pastor John? Anybody listen to that podcast? Uh, oh, man, I, would, I, I, I highly commend it to you. Uh, it's um, after he retired from preaching uh, full-time at his church, John Piper now has this... Uh, now, it used to be daily. Now it's uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Anyway, that's, I'm getting off, this, off the point. The host of Ask Pastor John, his name is Tony Renke, and he was an author until he became the host of this Ask Pastor John. Well, he's, he's, now he's author and the host. But he writes this. Listen to this. About this issue of the cure for our sinful hearts. Our fights are spurned by our coveting desires to be satisfied in the world. But what stops our fights is our proximity to God. What stops our fights is our wanting who He is. What stops our fights is finding our souls satisfied by what we believe is our ultimate good. The solution to our conflicts is not emotional numbness. The solution is to be awakened to new desires. The resolution to our fury is to have souls that are broken by sin, washed in humility, and now not only attracted to God but redeemed and made lovely, humble souls that in turn further attract the affection of God." Well, in these verses, and we'll, 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 we're almost near the end, we're just going to look at the, I see five things in these verses that James is, uh, through the Holy Spirit, um, is commanding us to do to cure our sinful, wandering, lustful, adulterous hearts. Submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, grieve over and be cleansed of our sin and humble ourselves. All right, let's just take them one by one. We've got what, five minutes? Okay, one minute, one minute per point. All right, first of all, submit to God. Do what He asks you to do. Um, a couple of my favorite verses on intimacy with God are in 
John, again, the upper room discourse, Jesus talking to his disciples, John 14, 21 and 23. Now, now look at, if you have your Bibles, open them and look at this, John 14, 21 and 23. Look at what Jesus is saying is the result of submission to God or obedience to God. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. That word manifest means to show, disclose, reveal. I think a lot of people say, man, I, I want to be in an intimate relationship with Jesus. I want to know more about Jesus. But they don't do the things that they already know God has asked them to do. Submit to God, James is saying. Do what you know. God. If there's something you know God has asked you to do and you're not doing it, do it. Now here's what 23 says. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Wow. That is stunning. Jesus is saying, you have my commandments. If you determine in your heart to submit to my word and my lordship, I will reveal myself to you, and I and the Father are going to come, and we're going to live with you. Incredible. Incredible results of being willing to submit to God. Remember the words of the, the old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus? Look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Remember that? Draw near to God. Draw near to God. Resist the devil. Say no to temptation. Say no to the temptation to pursue worldly pleasures. We all know that verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God never allows us to be tempted above what we're able. We can say no. We, can, we never, ever, ever have to say, Satan made me do it. I had no choice. I had to yield to this temptation. God never allows us to be tempted above what we can say no to. Say no to temptation. Resist the devil. The Bible says he'll flee from you. Remember in the, um, when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness and three times Satan came to him and he tempted him and Jesus resisted him, fought him with the word, and then the Bible says Satan left him for another time. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. Make your relationship with God your number one priority. Is, is it? Is your relationship with God your number one priority in life? It should be. If it's not, spend time with Him. Read the Word. Memorize. Meditate. Pray. Spend time with God. Make your relationship with God your number one priority in your life. Draw near to God. Grieve over your sin and cleanse your heart of sin. I don't know about you, but I tend to take my sin very lightly. Have you ever thought like I have well, the cross? Wow, that's a bit of an overkill for, you know, for my sins. Has anybody ever thought that like I have? Did, did, did Jesus really have to go through all that for what I did? God says yes. God said to Adam and Eve in the garden, you just take one bite of that fruit and death comes to you and all mankind. The reason we think that's harsh is because we don't see sin the way God sees it, do we? Grieve, grieve over your sin and cleanse your heart of sin. 
the, the blood of Jesus is ever available 24-7, 365, day or night. God is always ready, willing, able, eager to forgive the repentant sinner who comes to him and asks for forgiveness. And lastly, humble yourselves. Remember the prayer of the tax collector? Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Humble yourself. Admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Admit that you cannot please God on your own. More grace, more grace is available for the humble heart. Well, let's summarize then real quickly. If we quarrel and fight and there's strife in relationships, James 4 says it's because we are wanting things and we're not getting them and the things we're wanting are, 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 are wrong. Point two, God says if you're wanting things other than me, you're committing adultery. You're making yourself an, my enemy. And God desires exclusive worship of our hearts. And the last point is that God has made a way. And that way to solve the problem of a heart that's divided, a heart that's going after things that are displeasing God, the way is to draw near to God. Humble ourselves. Repent. Ask for forgiveness. Draw near to God. I want to close with the words to another old hymn. Um, forgot the name of it. Come thou fount of every blessing. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We need, we need God's help, don't we? We need God's help to keep our hearts close to Him. But Romans, Romans 1 through 3 tell us that in our natural state, we are enemies of God, nothing good in us. No one seeks after God, Paul writes. So we need God to draw our hearts close to Him, to cleanse them, to give us the hearts that He wants us to have. Let's pray.